Today, the Healthy Bronx podcast is excited to partner with the Not62 campaign for a Healthy Bronx to bring you a COVID-19 vaccine Q&A podcast. We are joined by Dr. Chidiaku Sobi, who grew up in the Bronx and is an infectious disease researcher and soon-to-be physician scientist. I'll let Dr. Akusobi introduce himself in just a moment. If you want to go to specifically the segments where we talk, where we answer your questions about the COVID-19 vaccine, please see the timestamp in the episode description. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Alexander Levine. So today on the Healthy Bronx podcast, we have Dr. Chidiaku Sobi, who is uh, right now at Harvard Medical School. He finished his PhD last spring and is in his final year of uh, clinical training. Um, so Dr. Akusobi, do you want to tell us a little bit about where, I guess, first, where you are in your training um, and maybe a little bit about what your what your research interests are? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, so Name is Chidi or Dr. Akusobi, and I am a seventh year MD PhD student at Harvard Medical School. I completed my PhD in infectious diseases last year. So I defended my thesis in June of 2020. And I worked in an infectious disease lab, specifically working on in a lab that studies mycosis, which is a bacteria that causes uh, TB. And Sorry, the, I was the audio, the audio pause for a second. You said mycobacterium tuberculosis. Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is the organism that causes tuberculosis, but there are a bunch of other bacteria that are related to TB um, that I studied. And these bacteria are known as non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Mm-hmm. And so my research was looking into how these bugs cause infections in people and what genes are required for them to cause infections. And the so the bacteria you study, people who are infected by those bugs, where, where, where are most of those people live? Or where do most of those people live? Yeah. Yeah, so the bacterium that I study is called Mycobacterium obsessus. It's an NTM or non-tuberculous mycobacteria. And these bacteria are actually found everywhere in the environment. And so they're found in soil, in fresh water, in um, even places like shower heads and water coolers. They don't cause infections in most people because most people have immune systems that can tolerate and then defend against these bugs. Mm-hmm. But if people are immunocompromised or if people have underlying conditions like lung conditions, uh, they can develop these infections. And so uh, NTM infections, non-tuberculous mycobacteria infections, you see them all over the world, including in developed nations like the US, but uh, they're prevalent in most countries. And and why did you become interested in mycobacterium tuberculosis and the non-tuberculosis mycobacterium as a, as a research focus? Yeah. So I should backtrack and say I have always been interested in infectious disease research. Mm-hmm. When I started thinking about um, getting into research, it was really microbes that captured my interest. I, the fact that they can cause disease, but that we have very specific treatments to actually cure people of uh, bacterial infections or viral infections, fungal infections, what have you. And so I've always been generally interested in, uh, in infectious disease. And I got interested in TB specifically because I worked uh, for a year at a drug discovery company called uh, TB Alliance. And at that company, I was doing a lot of sort of communication work, reading about the global research efforts in TB and communicating that work to the general public. And so when it was time for me to start my PhD, I had read a lot and knew a lot about tuberculosis. It's actually the number one infectious disease killer in the world. Over 10 million people, uh, you know, contract TB. 
um, a year. And so I thought it was a very important public health problem. It's huge in sub-Saharan Africa, places like India and other developing uh, countries. And so I, um, I chose TB in order to at least help make an impact in, uh, in that space. To backtrack for a second. So you, this, this podcast is about health in the Bronx. You are, you, you grew up in the Bronx. And so do you want to tell us a little about what you are, like, where'd you grow up in the Bronx and when did you start to become interested in science and research? Yeah. So I was born in Nigeria and immigrated to the U.S. to the Bronx at the age of two with my parents. And then my three younger siblings were all born in the Bronx in Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx, which is actually where we lived for the first 10 years. So um, for anyone who's from the Bronx who would know these streets, I lived on Innovale Avenue, which is sort of by Hunts Point. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we moved to sort of the middle Bronx, uh, close to the Bronx Zoo in the Pennon Parkway neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually not that far from Albert Einstein uh, Medical right. School. And so my interest in science. Uh, so when my parents moved to the U.S., their whole reason for coming was to provide a better life for their uh, family. Um, and they both were studying to become nurses at the time. And so I grew up in a household that was surrounded by medical knowledge, by nursing books. I was fascinated by the pictures of the human organ systems and fascinated by the ways in which the body works. And that initially piqued my interest in medicine and in science. Um, and as I sort of grew older, went to high school, realized that I loved science because it was, to me, an easy way to understand the world. There were certain laws, there were certain theories, and once you understood the laws and the theories, you can make, you have a better sense of what the world, how the world operated around you. And so that's what sort of drew me to science. Um, and then what drew me to medicine is that medicine is basically science's way of sort of helping the human condition. By understanding the science of the human body, you can then improve human health and disease, which to me um, was a noble effort, but also something that I was inspired to really pursue from an early age. And so, uh, you know, today the, the goal of our conversation is to really talk about uh, COVID-19, the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and you said your parents uh, and, your, and your siblings work in healthcare in the Bronx what do you want to speak a little bit about to maybe what you know of what their experiences have been like since last March and and currently? Yeah, so my mom and dad are both nurses um, at a nursing home in the Bronx, actually. Um, my dad is a supervisor there. My mom's a nurse there. And then my younger sister is actually a nurse at Montefiore, also in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, around the end of February, my mom got really sick. Um, she had fevers, chills, night sweats, lost uh, her sense of taste and smell, um, couldn't eat, and she was sick for two weeks. At, and at the time, we thought it was like the worst flu that sh she's ever had in her life, and we just really didn't know what to make of it. Um, my mom eventually recovered, and a week later, my dad actually got sick. Mm -hmm. um, his symptoms weren't as severe, but again, he had all the classic symptoms, you know, night sweats, fevers, chills, uh, a little bit of shortness of breath. Mm -hmm. um, a week later, we found out that, you know, COVID was spreading rapidly in, in New York and they got tested and it turns out that they both had COVID. Um, mm -hmm. as they, got, they had antibodies or they had? Yeah, they had antibodies uh, to COVID at the time. That's the test that they got. Um, mm -hmm. And as did many of the people that they worked with at the nursing home and many of their patients, mm -hmm. uh, some of them who did it make it. And so uh, my parents and my family have had direct experiences with COVID. They were some of the early people in a, in a New York City outbreak to have contracted it. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, they are, are doing fine and don't have any residual long-term sort of side effects of that. Mm -hmm. 
And have they have has your family members as healthcare workers have they received the vaccine yet? Uh, not not yet. Um, it took, and we could talk about this. My parents were initially apprehensive about the vaccine. They had a lot mm-hmm. of questions that most people, you know, have about the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, but after you know a couple of conversations with them, and also having received the vaccine myself, and showed them the video of me getting the vaccine, and kept them mm-hmm. up to date with sort of what I how I'm feeling, uh, my mom has been convinced to to get the vaccine, and my dad will as well. Why, why do you think they were apprehensive? Because I know, like they say in New York City, I think during the first week, about a third of nurses said they, they wanted to wait to get it or, or didn't accept it right away. Why do, you, why do you think your family was apprehensive? Yeah, they were apprehensive for good reason. They just didn't know much about the vaccine. I think once the vaccine was approved, the vaccines were approved for emergency use, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was all of a sudden a push to get people vaccinated. But I think the education behind behind the vaccine sort of lagged behind that mm-hmm. and so my parents just didn't know like how the vaccine worked they didn't know about the safety they didn't know about what any long-term side effects could be they just had a lot of questions about the vaccine and it wasn't until i like as your son spent the time to actually educate them and answer all their questions about it did they feel comfortable about mm-hmm. uh, the vaccine and you know it it did come out quickly Um, Mm -hmm. if you think about it. And so I think that was another thing that they were sort of grappling with too, like how could something come out so quickly and also be safe? Mm -hmm. And so how do you, you feel like, was there any particular piece of information that you shared with them that you feel like helped, helped them make their decision? Yeah, I think three things. Number one, explaining the clinical trial process. I think one, explaining the research. So how did the vaccine come to be? But then also Mm -hmm. explaining the clinical trials to let them know that this has been like a rigorously studied uh, a vaccine that has gone through the actual clinical trials that other vaccines and other medicines have gone through. So it's not, it wasn't somehow, didn't skirt any avenues that we typically would want for some of these medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I think taking the vaccine myself and us showing them the video of me getting the vaccine and then mm-hmm. keeping them up to date with how I felt day one, day two, day three post-vaccine was helpful. And then the third is thing is more and more people are taking the vaccine. And so I think it's becoming more normalized. I think in the first week and second week, it was mm-hmm. sort of novel, but mm-hmm. as more of their coworkers, as more as more of their friends are taking the vaccine, it, all of a sudden their anxiety or their apprehension has decreased. Have, have any of them been administering the vaccine? Because I feel like, like just seeing, like administering it and seeing people get in, seeing them be okay is, is also helpful. No, a hundred percent agreed. So they haven't been administering the vaccine, but they've seen people administer it. They have friends who've administered it. My mom tells me about some of her Nigerian, you know, coworkers slash friends who have gotten the vaccine and that felt great mm-hmm. afterwards. And I think that reduces the anxiety. Okay. So now as we transition to really talking about the uh, mRNA vaccine for COVID-19, um, can we just kind of start with, do you want to explain like why, why this is significant in terms of uh, like, vaccine technology as an mRNA vaccine? Yeah, I love that question because these vaccines are actually really novel and a really fascinating and huge breakthrough in medical research. Mm -hmm. So typically when we think of vaccines, there's sort of two main classes of vaccines, uh, types of vaccines that we have used in medicine. You know, class one are vaccines that we describe as live attenuated. And so you take whatever virus or bacteria that causes a disease Mm -hmm. and you make it weaker. You make it so weak that it doesn't actually cause infection, but it still allows the immune system to recognize it as foreign. And so that's one class of vaccine that we have used for a while. Things Mm -hmm. like mumps, rubella, measles, 
fall into that category. The second class of vaccines are known as sort of inactivated or dead vaccines. That's when you actually like take whatever causes the disease, virus, bacteria, and you kill it, and then you introduce that to the body. And because it's dead, it, again, it doesn't cause an infection, but the body can recognize it as foreign and produce antibodies to, to give immunity to it. Mm -hmm. So those are canonical or the, the typical classes of vaccines that we've had in the past. And now with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, we have this third class called mRNA vaccines. And they're special because it actually doesn't use any part of the organism at all. What it does is it takes genetic material from the organism and it instructs the cells in our body to produce proteins that come from that organism. And those proteins, which are foreign, are recognized by our immune system. And then the cells in our immune system produce antibodies against these foreign proteins. And so it doesn't use any, uh, it's not like a killed version of the virus. It's not an inactivated version of the virus or a weaker virus. It's actually just genetic material from the virus that we can then uh, engineer our cells to produce proteins from. Mm -hmm. And so um, like, I think so a question some people have is given that this is, you said like a new or a novel technology, uh, I think some people who are, who are maybe worried about the vaccine, that's where some of their concern comes from. But I also think it's important to address that while it's the first time an mRNA vaccine is used, um, that this is, has been a technology that's been in development for some time now. Do you want to speak a little bit about the history of mRNA vaccine development? Yeah. So mRNA vaccine development has actually been going on since the mid-90s. This was an idea that was championed by a scientist at UPenn in the 90s. Um, and from the 90s, research into mRNA vaccines has been ongoing into the 2000s to the 2010s. And now with the first mRNA vaccine being sort of approved for emergency use in 2020. Um, so that's over 30 years of research of scientists from around the world slowly trying to get these mRNA vaccines to work. And so it would be unfair to think of these vaccines as coming out of thin air in 2020, when in fact, there's over 30 years of research trying to get these vaccines to, to work. And, and not only that, there people have been actually studying mRNA vaccines for uses in other diseases uh, before COVID. It just so happened that, you know, with the advent of this pandemic in which, you know, millions of people were dying around the world, there was a real need and as a result, a real financial push and a lots of collaboration from across the world um, to really speed up this research. Um, but the but the actual foundation of the research has been has been ongoing for decades. Mm -hmm. And is there a re like so we know COVID nineteen is a from a particular class of viruses called coronaviruses. Uh, is there any reason why like um, mRNA vaccines are used for coronaviruses and they're not using what you said as like uh, a killed vaccine or a subunit vaccine yeah. or, or another vaccine technology? Why it makes sense for coronaviruses? Yeah, so uh, the Moderna and Pfizer are two companies that produce the mRNA vaccines, but there are mm -hmm. actually other types of vaccines against COVID that mm -hmm. uh, are, have been developed and are actually now becoming approved in other countries that mm -hmm. are other or that are from those canonical or those earlier classes. And so mm -hmm. the killed or inactivated version of uh, of COVID nineteen virus, that Sinopharm vaccine, that's their technology for it. Mm -hmm. um, there's AstraZeneca, Oxford. They have another class of uh, vaccine that is being used for COVID. So, but that's that's also a new class, right? Uh, somewhat, yeah. It's based on like vector technology, but. Mm -hmm. 
all of this is to say there have been so many companies that entered this research space, and it just so happens that the two companies that were approved for use first in America were the mRNA vaccines, but other classes have also been developed for COVID, and they're now in phase three clinical trials, so we're trying to see how efficacious they are and are now starting to be approved in other countries. But is it is it fair to say that coronaviruses were hard to vaccinate against, and thus they had to try different technologies, and that's maybe why the mRNA vaccine was successful? Yeah, I, I should say that people haven't really put so much work into trying to vaccinate against coronaviruses because the coronaviruses that have, there haven't been many coronaviruses that have become pandemics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so SARS, which was, you know, uh, there's local outbreaks in a couple countries in the early 2000s. And then there was MERS in Saudi Arabia, sort of in the 2014 region. None of these these two viruses didn't become pandemics. And so they weren't there wasn't a lot of research being done to really produce that produce vaccines against them. Now, uh, COVID-19, the virus that causes COVID-19 obviously became a pandemic. And so because there were companies already developing mRNA technologies, they quickly sort of changed their research uh, program to see if they can use this new technology against COVID. And given how flexible mRNA technology is, it just so happened that these two companies came out with the first vaccines, but other types of uh, vaccine modalities have also been used against COVID-19 and are uh, starting to be approved. And so within this last year to create the COVID-19 vaccine and within the last 30 years doing research on mRNA vaccines, Mm -hmm. are there any particular stories in the um, history of science that you find particularly inspiring as a young scientist yourself? Yeah, I would have to say the actual development of mRNA vaccines is really inspiring. So the scientist who uh, sort of championed the idea of mRNA vaccines, she was uh, studying at UPenn. She was a professor there, and she had this bright idea that you can actually use mRNAs, which are, you know, this molecule that nature uses to uh, be a blueprint for cells to produce proteins mm-hmm. and her brain. I'd say idea, for like a lay person, like an instruction for your cells to make protein, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so she thought, Hey, why don't, what if we instructed the cells to make proteins that come from sort of a virus or so bacteria, could that produce immunity? Um, and so she worked on this idea, um, in the nineties and actually all the experiments failed and kept failing to the point where she was actually demoted as a professor from UPenn because she wasn't bringing in research funding. And then she eventually left, but she still really believed in this idea um, and continued to work on it. She she teamed up with a collaborator in Boston and together they figured out the key in order to making mRNA vaccines viable, which was that in order to make mRNAs uh, a viable vaccine strategy, they had to become more stable molecules. And so they figured out a trick to make mRNAs more stable. And once they were able to do that, all of a sudden, all these, you know, research um, breakthroughs happened to the point where by, you know, the late uh, 2010s, companies had been uh, built around this technology. But it took 20 years, 20 years of toiling in a lab and believing in your ideas, even though people around you, like, did not um, and so I think that story is really inspiring because it really gets at the perseverance that's required to do science mm-hmm. and and the fact that, you know, you really have to believe in an idea and, and go for it, um, even if uh, other people don't believe in you. Yeah, amazing, really inspiring. And for for yourself as a as a young scientist, I am, I assume that really resonates with with you. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many people who do PhDs, uh, almost on a daily basis, you have to uh, persevere because experiments more often do not work than they do. And just, a, I guess, a quick digression is, do you do you see yourself as a, like, do you want to work as a lab scientist moving forwards, or do you think you'll be more clinical? I want to do both, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think this pandemic has really exposed and has shown me the importance of being able to do science. So that means asking questions that mm -hmm. um, you have the tools to you know, answer, and then also taking those discoveries that you get from the lab and applying them into medicine and implying them into actually like improving people's lives with new medications, new treatments, new diagnostics. So uh, I see the world in doing both, but you know, we'll see. I still have time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so as we continue to talk about uh, the the vaccine, I guess today we're really only going to talk about the mRNA vaccines because those are the, mo the main vaccines being distributed in the Bronx right now, right? Most of the sites throughout the Bronx either have the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. Um, let's talk a little bit about just like the basics of um, the data, because I think a lot of people are like, oh, this thing is this new and there's there's a general anxiety, but they don't they don't really understand. Or I think a lot of people don't look to the clinical trials to see how many people got this. Do these people represent like me or or another person? And and I think that's a place where, where there's some hesitation. Um, so like kind of basics, population health and demographics of the vaccine. Um, how many people receive the vaccine in in the final clinical trials, just like a, a, a broad a broad number? Yeah, I think it's helpful to, before I answer that question, just take mm -hmm. a step back and explain mm -hmm. how the clinical trials work yes, so that please. people understand how you can go from you know mRNA vaccine to authorizing it to being used in a population. And so in general, we can think of clinical trials as operating in three phases. Mm -hmm. Phase one is uh, you ask the question, is this vaccine safe? And so you mm -hmm. give the vaccine to healthy individuals and you see what happens. In phase two clinical trials, you ask the question, what dose of the vaccine do we need in order to actually generate a response from the body? Mm -hmm. um, and then phase three clinical trials and the most important trial, and this is the, tr this is the trial that in which I will talk about the data. In phase three clinical trials, you're asking the question, how efficacious, how much does the, does the vaccine actually work in preventing COVID-19 disease? Mm -hmm. And so the way that these trials are designed is that you take a group of people and, and for these trials, you know, 30, 30 to 36,000 people were recruited and mm -hmm. you split them into two groups. Group one are people who receive a placebo. Basically, they receive something that um, is inert. It doesn't, it's just like, you know, water or, or salt water or something. Mm -hmm. um, and then group two are the people who actually receive the vaccine. Importantly, the people who are in the trial don't know that they're getting the vaccine or placebo, and the people mm -hmm. who are giving the you know vaccine or placebo don't know. So this is what we call a double-blinded study, and mm -hmm. this is uh, sort of the gold standard for making sure that there are no biases introduced in a study. Mm -hmm. And so you look at the, you monitor these two people, and then at the end of your study, you ask the question: How many people got COVID nineteen in a placebo group versus the uh, vaccine group. And then you calculate a number that, that the effective effectiveness number. And for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that effectiveness was around 95%, which is, which is really, really good. Mm -hmm. And so when thinking about who was in the trial, this is really important because if you want to ask people to take a vaccine, you want to, you want to feel reassured that the people who were in the trial actually represented the communities. 
And so uh, both companies did a really great job of ensuring that the people who were included in the trial more or less represented the proportion of racial ethnic groups in the country were 50-50 split in gender and also were people who had uh, pre-existing conditions like heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, because many of the people who would be getting the vaccine would fall into these categories. And so I think it's a really important point to say that these the clinical trials, the phase three clinical trials incorporated and had people who were Hispanic and Latino, had African Americans, had Asian Americans, had an equal split with men, women, had people who had all sorts of pre-existing health conditions. So by the end, when it when we found that the vaccine was actually 95% effective, and when they looked into how effective the, the vaccine was in all these groups, we found that there was it was similarly effective across all groups. And that really is, um, was a great answer. And it's what gave people the confidence to say, hey, this can actually work on a population level. Mm -hmm. To come back a little bit to, you said it's 95% effective. I, I think some people have the concern like, oh, if I wait, there'll be a more effective vaccine. But actually, can you speak to like what 95% effectiveness means in terms of like other vaccines? Yeah. So the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that are around 95% effective are the highest and the most eff effective vaccines that have so far been approved. The AstraZeneca Oxford uh, vaccines, which are being used in the UK and Brazil and other countries, is about 75% effective. Uh, the vaccine that was produced by China, Sinopharm, that's being used in the Middle East and in China, depending on what studies you look at, it's anywhere from 51% effective to 75% effective. And so really the 95% effective is like a knockout of the park in terms of how well the vaccine works. Mm -hmm. um, and in actuality, a lot of the vaccines that we use already against diseases aren't don't any don't even approach 95%. A lot of them are in the 60%, 70%. But that's mm -hmm. actually fine if you're if you're vaccinating many people in the population. Right, like the, the flu shot is more on the, like the 60% or something. Right, exactly. But we still give it because it's more important to protect people from potentially getting the flu than it is to really get like 95%, which is which is tough for any for any disease. So the fact that we have 95% for the mRNA vaccines, I think was really a scientific marvel and something that uh, should really be celebrated as a, an achievement. Um, okay, and so when people got, uh, when people received the vaccine, and then they said they 95% of them didn't get COVID. How were they exposed to COVID? Yeah. So the way that the trial was designed is that they just let people live their life. And what's, what was, what's really sort of neat in the way that the trials were designed was that because the pandemic was ongoing, you could be assured that people would just be exposed by living their life. And so um, when you're thinking about deciding trials, you can sort of intentionally expose people, which mm -hmm. in this case would not be ethical. They decided to vaccinate or give placebo, let people live their life. And then after, you know, two months, come back and ask who developed, who developed COVID-19 and then who was vaccinated versus not. And I mm -hmm. think this is more true to how um, most people would be living their life after getting vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You get vaccinated, then you sort of go on with your daily living. Um, and so the vaccine trial sort of closely mimicked that, that real life occurrence. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so uh, some other questions that I've sort of like heard from um, people in preparation for this episode, um, before we get to the actual specific Q&A from uh, folks in the Bronx is if, if, someone, if, if someone's had COVID, like why would you tell them to get the vaccine? If they're like, I had it, do I really need the vaccine? What, what would you say to that? Yeah, I love that question. So 
If you look into the scientific literature, you'll find that if you get COVID, your body produces antibodies against the virus, right? You have a natural immunity, but the amount of antibodies that you actually produce from a natural infection of COVID is actually less than a number of antibody, than amount of antibodies you produce after getting vaccinated. And so the thought is that the immunity that you get from this, from the vaccinations is actually higher if you're looking at antibody count. Um, so that's one. Two, we still don't know how long immunity lasts after getting, you know, a after getting infected with COVID naturally, right? And so mm -hmm. there's a chance that you get COVID, you recover, you're fine, but how long you're fine for is an open question. Um, whereas in getting vaccinated, again, we still don't actually know the answer for how long you're, you'll be protected, but the, the sense is that um, it'll be most likely as long, if not longer than a natural infection. Um, and there, and the third is that you can always be at risk of getting reinfected with COVID. That is something that we've seen in other in in certain pop, in certain people. And so, um, I think that surefire protection is uh, through a vaccine is uh, the way to go. Mm -hmm. And so, if someone gets the vaccine and they're still like, you know, maybe they're worried they they have COVID for some reason, they get tested. How will that will the receiving the vaccine affect the testing for COVID? Yeah, I, I would think it really depends on um, what type of co what type of test you get. Mm -hmm. So if you get the vaccine, you're stimulating your body to produce antibodies against uh, COVID. And so you'll always have you'll have the COVID antibodies, you'll test positive for COVID antibodies, but that just tells you that at some point you're either naturally, you're either vaccinated or, or naturally infected. Mm -hmm. If you were tested for COVID via like a, the nasal swabs and mm -hmm. they do a PCR test to look for presence or absence of the, of the virus's genomic material, mm -hmm. if that tests positive, that's I think an independent process from actually getting vaccinated. And so you can in theory uh, have COVID, but not develop the disease. You can be asymptomatic, uh, mm -hmm. and that's something that is an active research question. So, if you're getting, if you're vaccinated, how many people, you know, can test positive for COVID but be asymptomatic and potentially transmit it? So that's why it's important, even if you're vaccinated, to still wash your hands, um, uh, socially distance, wear a mask, because um, a you want to protect yourself, you want to protect other people, and the question of whether or not you can be asymptomatically positive for COVID is not yet known. Mm -hmm. So the advice then is after being vaccinated, you're still going to kind of take the measures that people have been taking in the last several months. Exactly, because the vaccination prevents people from developing symptomatic COVID, so basically becoming sick from COVID. But mm -hmm. whether or not you test positive and still shed is, an, is something that scientists and doctors are still trying to answer. Okay. And so another thing recently in the news that's become you know, I, I guess it's being talked about more is that is that there's there's new variants of the COVID virus. And um, what does this vaccine like, like, does this vaccine protect people if they've if if they've been exposed to those new variants? Yeah, so the, the thinking now, and I should backtrack and say people don't actually know the answer yet. This is an, mm -hmm. another area of active research, sort of when there's a pandemic, <laughs> there's more questions that are generated than uh, people can answer. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question now is, okay, with these new variants, uh, does the vaccine actually protect against them? And the thinking now is that the vaccine will. And the reason why that's the case is because these vaccines stimulates our body to produce antibodies against COVID-19, but these antibodies that are produced are actually really variable. They're what we call a polyclonal response, meaning they're producing many, many types of antibodies that can bind to lots of spots on the spike protein mm -hmm. on the virus. And so the thought is that even if you have, you know, different variants of uh, 
COVID out there, the varied amounts, the diverse, the diversity of antibodies that we produce should, in theory, be able to protect us. Now, all of this is in theory. People are currently, as we speak, doing the research to answer that question. Um, but at the moment, the thinking is that uh, these variants should be protected or should be, uh, we should have protection against these variants. Mm -hmm. And I think the understanding, right, is that there will almost certainly be protection, but if it's a different level of protection is like another question too, right? Right, right, right. So there's a degree of protection that's also important to think about. Okay. And so now turning to questions from people who submitted from the Bronx uh, on our Q&A form, we have Ashley from Morris Heights who asks, um, what is the common misleading information that you can address regarding the vaccine? So are there any particular points of misinformation that you see maybe on social media or elsewhere um, in the news that you think are, are important to address or that you've heard from just people asking you questions? Yeah, I mean, there's so so many points, <laughs> so many uh, areas of misinformation out there. I think mm -hmm. the one that uh, kind of tickles me the most is that these vaccines have some sort of microchip device uh -huh. that uh, the government's going to use to track people. Um, and I think that uh, sort of fear stems from the fact that people just may not understand what exactly is in the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so I dispel that myth by saying the vaccine really only has three ingredients, right? Mm -hmm. It has the mRNA molecule that we talked about. That's the molecule that provides instructions to make the viral proteins. Mm -hmm. Then it had, then these mRNA molecules are surrounded by what we call lipids. These are sort of what uh, it's found naturally in our body. It surrounds our cells. It's what allows the mRNA to actually, you know, be stable. And then finally- And, and get uh, into your cell, right? And get into the cells, exactly. And then finally, um, we have buffers, basically salts and water that provide stability. And that's it. So there's no microchip device. There's nothing that uh, should worry people about sort of permanently altering or giving access uh, to, uh, to their body, uh, to the government. Uh, so that's one misconception that I, I try to debunk. The second is that, um, you know, these vaccines are going to somehow permanently alter you, turn you into a zombie or just, you know, change you in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important to note that mRNAs, these molecules are very short lived. They're unstable by somewhat design. And so uh, when the mRNA vaccine enters our cells and, and provides instructions to produce proteins, uh, after a while, this mRNA is degraded. Um, and no longer exists in a body. And that's uh, important to note. So it's not going to, it doesn't permanently alter your DNA. It doesn't stick around forever. It, it's by design short-lived. Mm -hmm. And what about just people who are have fear of how fast these were developed? We talked about it a little bit, but do you have anything else to say in respect to that? Yeah, I should, I will say that, you know, these vaccines went through rigorous phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials. The reason why they uh, seem to have been developed so quickly is that one, the entire research program, the entire research apparatus of the world, for the most part, turned to solve this one problem. And because of that, there was a lot of money poured in, you know, billions and billions of dollars from many US, from many uh, world governments, companies um, were all invested in solving this problem. There was unprecedented, unprecedented collaboration between academic groups, between countries. And so scientists were talking to each other. This also expedited the process. And there was also an active pandemic happening. And so you can in real time test the efficacy of these vaccines because people were actually coming down with COVID in the US on the order of hundreds of thousands of people a day. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
the mRNA technology has been in development, as we've discussed earlier, for 30 years. Because mRNA is a very flexible technology, they, scientists were very quickly able to figure out the um, mRNA molecule that would be best to vaccinate against. And then everything that I just talked about with the research apparatus being directed towards solving this singular problem, I think really uh, was a huge boon to getting uh, uh, this vaccine from sort of idea to execution in about 10 to 12 months. Okay. And now next question is Vivian from Little Falls asks, do I remain contagious after I've had both shots and waited for two weeks? Yeah. So if you tested positive for COVID, um, I would say that the current recommendation is, you know, you self-quarantine for 10 to 14 days, and then you get another PCR test. And if you are uh, negative, then you're no longer contagious. But as I mentioned earlier, just because you have the vaccine, it doesn't mean that you can't potentially have asymptomatic COVID, meaning you tested positive, but you are you don't have any symptoms. And in that scenario, it's like it is plausible that you could be infectious. And so that's why people really make the recommendation of continuing to wear a mask, washing hands, socially distancing, taking the necessary precautions, because the vaccine really protects you from developing, you know, symptomatic COVID, from getting really sick and potentially passing. Um, and uh, that is really what is being protected against. Mm -hmm. And so Vivian has a follow-up question. Do I have to worry about giving this to my grandchildren and children and friends, even if I've, even after I've had the vaccine? So that's kind of the same, the same answer, correct? Yeah, exactly. So you want to still take the necessary precautions. And ideally, ideally, your grandchildren, your children, um, your family members and friends are have access to the vaccine. And so they can not only protect themselves, but other people. And that's really the whole goal of this vaccination effort is to achieve herd immunity, to achieve a point in which most enough people in the population are vaccinated that you can be safe knowing that people aren't transmitting the disease to each other. Mm -hmm. And now uh, the next question is, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. It's Egioma, uh, who's from the Bronx, doesn't say where. Um, says, hello, Dr. Akusobi, due to the new strains of the virus that are now arising, if needed, how quickly can pharma companies develop new vaccines that would provide greater immunity from COVID? I love this question. Uh, one is because it's for my sister, Joma. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, shout out to my sister, Joma, uh, for asking a question and calling me Dr. Akusobi. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great question. So one of the biggest benefits of this mRNA technology is that it's flexible, right? It's a genetic material that we get from the virus and we instruct our, our cells to make proteins from. And so if it turns out that a variant comes out that these vaccines are no longer effective against, all you have to do is take the genetic material from that variant and basically plop it into the platform that we've already developed for mRNA vaccines. And then of course, do the necessary experiments to make sure that it's safe and it works, but you, you don't have to sort of reinvent the wheel. All you have to do is take the genetic material from this new variant and stick it into the pipeline that you already have for these mRNA vaccines. Um, and so that's really a game changer that allows us to have more flexibility and to be able to respond faster to new uh, variants that may arise. And uh, Joyce asks, if after you've received your first vaccine, do you have to return to the same provider for the booster shot? Additionally, must both vaccines be from the same manufacturer? Uh, so as of now, the answer is yes. Uh, these studies, the phase one, two, three trials that I was talking about earlier, they were 
only done with the idea that people were receiving the same vaccine from the same company. If you start mixing doses, A, that wasn't studied, and B, you're signing up to be to, uh, an experiment, basically, right? And so mm -hmm. the real, the, the recommendation is that you get your booster shot. If you get the Pfizer vaccine, that's after 21 days. If it's Moderna, after 28 days. Uh, so same company from the same provider, and that's the recommendation right now. Okay. And then uh, Abel from Norwood asks, are there other safer, more effective vaccines coming down the line that are worth waiting for? Uh, so, I mean, I can't tell the future. Who knows what <laughs> vaccines may be out in like five, 10 years. But looking at sort of the pipeline of vaccines that are in development around the world in phase one, two, and three clinical trials, at the moment, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have the most efficacy. Uh, are the most effective. They're at 95%. The ones that are starting to now be approved in other countries uh, range from like 50% to 75%. Um, and so the vaccines that we have in the US right now are the most, uh, have the most efficacy. Um, and then with safety, they're also uh, pretty safe as well. So I would not wait because you may be waiting for years. Um, if you have the opportunity to get the vaccine and if it's something you want to do, then I, I would go ahead and get it. And so that kind of gets us through our questions. If we, as you look forward, what do you think the next, what do you believe the next several months are going to look like? Yeah, I think we're starting to see what the next several months will look like in terms of all the variants that are now being discovered around the world. I mean, a new variant was just discovered in California. There's mm -hmm. variants in Brazil that were discovered, variants in the South Africa and the UK, Nigeria. And so I think what the world is entering now is a phase of genomic surveillance, meaning we're starting to sequence the virus and trying to understand how the virus is evolving, because we want to understand if a variant comes out that it's going to be resistant to the vaccine. So that's one. But we also want to understand whether or not there are variants out there that are going to be more contagious or cause people to actually get more serious disease, right? And so starting to understand how COVID-19 virus is changing is what I think 2021, the name of 2021 will be. And then also, obviously, administering the vaccine to as many people as we can, as safely and quickly as we can, is the next hurdle that um, so public health officials and a new administration coming in will be uh, signing up to tackle. Okay, very nice. So, uh, Dr. Chidiakusobi, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I guess one one question in closing on a little bit lighter note: um, When you come back to the Bronx, is there a particular place that you like to go to? <laughs> if it's not, if it's non-COVID times. Yeah. Um, I, real talk, I, I really love Bay Plaza. That's where my siblings and I go. Um, uh -huh. It's like a mall in the Bronx and we just kind of window shop, shop around, we eat. At the time, a while ago, there's a movie theaters there that we would sometimes watch movies in. So yeah, it's like a, it's just a chill place to spend a Saturday afternoon with your siblings. Thank you for tuning in. Special thank you to Fernando Torado, the Director of New Initiatives at the Bureau of Bronx Neighborhood Health, Center for Health, Equity, and Community Wellness, which is part of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene's Bronx office. Also, special thank you to Daniel Mitchell, who is my roommate, a student at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and also helped prepare questions for this episode. I hope you keep tuning in, and I look forward to future episodes. Thank you.